Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Bob Latino and Steve Doby to the show. We discuss a question I get all the time, and that question is, where should we start as reliability engineers? I know a lot of you either have transitioned into reliability from either a maintenance position or an operations position, or even as someone who like me, was a mechanical engineer and was dropped into it. And so this common question that I get is something that's real important. I hope you enjoy and I hope you get value out of this. If your company sells products or services to engage maintenance and reliability professionals, definitely let your marketing manager know about Rob's Reliability Project. We have various advertising options available, whether that's on the live Q&As or just on the regular podcast or in my graphics or newsletters. So definitely let them know. And if they're interested, they can send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Lastly, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and tell your colleagues about the show. I would really, really, really appreciate that. And we have been growing, so thanks for doing that already. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks for listening, and let's get into the interview with Bob Latino and Steve Doby. Hey guys, we are back, and we're we're all always home, but now we're home for sure on quarantine lockdown. So I got two special guests today. I got Bob Latino from Reliability Center, and I have Steve Doby from Tech Resources. Bob, first I'm off, excellent. You? Thanks for the invite. Oh, was, Thanks for coming you on. Got, you got a captive Steve, audience. You? <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape now, right? <laughs> I'm doing really well. Steve, Thanks, how are Bob. you? Perfect. Thanks for joining us today. So for everyone who's listening, so Bob is the CEO of Reliability Center. If you want to check them out, go to reliability.com. Also, he's been a previous guest on this show. So go back into the archives. You can find two episodes with Bob. Steve is a reliability engineer at Tech Resources. He's also been on the show, I think it was two or three times. Um, so go back and check those out in the podcast archives as well. What I wanted to have you guys on today is to talk a little bit about a question that I get. I even got it, I think it was yesterday. And this question is really just like people get dropped into these reliability roles and they want to know how do they get started. For me, I think the first thing I like to do if I get into a new site is kind of understand where they're at in a sense that is their maintenance process look good? Is do, What kind of condition is their equipment in? How's that all operating? Now, like just for just for a little bit of context or, or maybe Steve, you can talk a little bit about this. Like how do you like to start off when you get into a new site? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the first thing I usually do is look at um, why I was brought in there. Did I replace somebody? Um, am I the first reliability engineer they've ever had? Um, if I'm the first one that they've ever had, I usually go right to the floor 
ask the technicians, what are your biggest problems? Because ultimately they're going to be the ones you need the biggest buy-in from to get the job done. The manager decided to bring in reliability. So therefore you should have some decent support from him. But those guys on the floors are going to have the projects with your quick win and more often than not the solutions you need as well. Um, now, if you come in and you're replacing somebody in a position that's had a high turnover, then you're going to need to focus the other way and f focus on what the manager wants, what the manager needs, because clearly something that the other uh, guys have been doing wasn't working. Um, so the first thing I would ask is him is, why didn't they work? What are you expecting? Hopefully you covered that in your interview, but if you didn't, this is now the best time to do that as well. Um, that should be able to get you little bit of a kickstart into uh, and focus where your attention is going to go. But building relationships on either side is always the most important thing when you get there. Yeah. And, and when we, we talked about that in the uh, how to find a job in reliability podcast. So if you're looking for more interview and job insights, check that one out. Now, Bob, when you get dropped into a new site, typically you're coming in from a root cause analysis perspective. Like, what do you like to do first to sort of get your get get a feel for the program? Well, Rob, I'm one of the few that makes a living off of failure. So my, my mother is really proud that I've, I've got a career of failure. <laughs> I, I want I want to address this in a, in a little bit of a different tactic through a story. Uh, I'm not, I don't know that everybody knows our background, but we, you know, we had originally been an R&D group of a major chemical company. They're, they're Honeywell today, but it was way back in 1972. And uh, if you can imagine, I know the, a, lot, a lot of folks are younger these days, but imagine uh, 50 years ago trying to implement this thing called reliability, which nobody ever knew about. And I remember... Uh, through the, the, the discussions, my father had started that group uh, and, and the stories that he would tell me about where the first discussion was, where does reliability fit on the organizational chart? And uh, because it was, yeah, this, this is new. So the natural inclination was to put it subordinate to maintenance. And he uh, then realized that he had a, a, an educational opportunity because he was vehement that reliability is a tomorrow activity and maintenance is a today activity. Uh, so uh, if you put a, pro, a reactive, if you put a proactive field like ours, uh, like a reliability subordinate to a reactive field like maintenance, you will never do any reliability. So uh, that, that, that's where they, on the organizational chart, they, to isolate them from each other, they made them uh, independent organizations, uh, you know, reporting to the, to the leadership uh, above them. But that, that made a good point that, you know, if I'm a maintenance engineer and a reliability engineer in the same breath, we'll do very re little reliability work because maintenance will be dealing with the urgent and not the important. And the, uh, the reliability work, while, while it's the important, the, the, you know, it's, it's not urgent in the sense that I have to do something right now. We're, we're in charge of... Uh, in, in a nutshell, I've always believed that reliability equals proaction equals no surprises. So we're we're in we're we're in charge of being able to uh, reduce the amount of maintenance that needs to be done. And that was another thing uh, back then where uh, people were uh, very scared. People in maintenance were always scared uh, that if reliability is su is successful, I'm out of a job. 
And uh, even one of the, t- the tactics that we did as an R&D group, we says uh, any of the plants that would take the corporate resources in, that nobody would be let go in the name of reliability. And this was a key because, uh, you know, the, the problem was that there wasn't enough people to resource reliability jobs, like all the preventive and predictive and the RCAs and things of that nature, is because they were all fixing stuff. So if, as the reliability would increase, uh, the amount of uh, maintenance needs would decrease. So that therefore you would move the maintenance resources who were already tired of fixing the same thing over and over again, it was monotonous work, and move them over into more interesting and creative jobs that would be in the reliability side. So I would answer this question is that uh, if you're going into this and, and it's a new entity, There has to be a complete understanding, uh, this would be under awareness and education, of the differences between a proactive uh, proactive environment and a reactive environment, because the the, the ideas conceptually have to be isolated from each other. Is that too much of a a run-on? No, no, no. I love it, and I've seen it over and over through my career about just people reporting to maintenance, like reliability engineers reporting to maintenance managers, or even, you know, even in some of the current states of, of programs is basically like people are running around trying to fix stuff or people are worried about stuff that's broken. And then, but then you're also sort of this split role where you're mostly a maintenance engineer trying to fix stuff, but then they're expecting you to also do these sort of long-term these long-term asset management type initiatives, which never seems to work. Now, Steve, I guess, I guess kind of following up on that a little bit, like you've bounced around some different minds recently. Do you have any thoughts on like, what's the perception of reliability versus maintenance out there? Uh, Certainly within mining in Canada. uh, But I think it's, pretty ubiquitous across the mining industry uh, that reliability is a maintenance function. I haven't yet seen, I think I've seen maybe one or two mining companies that actually have reliability separate or an asset management team separate and reliability is tied into that. Generally though, it's, you know, the reliability team reports to the maintenance manager or the maintenance superintendent. And absolutely they suffer from that issue that Bob is talking about where you can get wrapped up in the day-to-day. How we're set up at Tech, we've got that central reliability group. We're still technically part of the maintenance business improvement team, and we can't affect as much change as maybe we'd like in the operator-driven reliability area, which is where having that separate, I think, you get the most benefit from. But it's you know it takes you out of that day-to-day work um, from being the guy where they run up with you know a bad sample. What what's this in the jar like? You know, it's great when people bring those things to you, but ultimately that's a day-to-day task. That's a maintenance task of diagnosing that one sample, looking at that one uh, uh, one condition monitoring result. Yeah, it's pretty pretty common throughout mining for sure. Very few have put the resources to actually separating them or understand why it would be beneficial to separate them. <laughs> yeah, understanding why it would be beneficial to separate them is, is very huge. And I've always, I've kind of, I've actually kind of taken Bob your your expression, but it's it's like you can never become proactive by working reactively. And so, 
that to me is something that, I mean, I struggle today in, in my role as an asset manager. Like we get sucked into these things that are breaking where we're supposed to, you know, work on some capital requests. And at the same time, the other half of our job is to, to look out 10 years or 20 years and try to forecast, you know, how to optimally run an asset. And it's, it's a very uh, bimodal job, which I don't think is, in my opinion, obviously, is not the same job. It should really be two different ones. I think that we're all in the, in the same bucket when it comes to the, the defeating the paradigm. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. We, we never seem to have the time and budget to do things right, but we always <laughs> seem to have the time and budget to do them again. And, and that's, that's a defeating paradigm. I mean, that's 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 so the antithesis of reliability. Yeah, that, I mean, that's come up. Uh, I mean, it's got that's come up on numerous podcasts like you've been on. It's it's come up there. Even one that's well, it's out this week, but I recorded it a few weeks ago was uh, with Joe Adam. And that was what he was talking about was one of his core things that he did through his transition, uh, improving reliability at, at Roche Diabetes was really double down and focus in on the maintenance technicians who are executing the work and really instilling that need for precision maintenance up front and doing the job the right way the first time, regardless of how long that takes. And I, I thought that was really huge. And for me, and, and I'll kind of ask you a question here, Steve, is I've always seen the battle being between operations and maintenance for that for that quickness or that speed of the job. And actually, what Joe mentioned to me was his battle was more internally from the maintenance guys. Now, what have you seen out there in terms of that type of attitude? Yeah, it's um, really it's, you know, maintenance says we're going to take something down for, um, I don't know, 12 hours. And operation comes back at you know eight hours and says where's this machine we need it we've got production demands and we're not meeting them and so there's this disconnect where a schedule was put out saying we're going to have it for this long then uh, the operations guys all of a sudden want it back sooner because they need it well there's some planning issues and scheduling issues there and then i've seen it on the other side too where um and this happens both on the same day where this okay we're only going to take this this asset for 12 hours and then all of a sudden it's oh we need it for you know 18 hours and so if you can dial in that schedule and you get people to believe that schedule like okay if i say i'm gonna have something down for 12 hours and i take it down for 12 hours um then that's where i think you start to get a lot of improvement between those groups because they can start to trust each other more and then you can push back too on the operations crew if you're on the maintenance side um, and say, look, I said, I'm going to take it down for this long. This is what I've been doing. This is what we do. Um, you said, okay, do it before. So let us have the unit and then we'll get it back to you. And then that way it's not going to fail when it's sitting there running out um, somewhere in the field and cause bigger downtime. If I, if I could jump on that, uh, I said, this is good. This is a scenario. I just want to put a vision in people's head of a signal of when you're making progress is that uh, when, you, when a mechanic gets really, really good at fixing something, uh, like Steve was describing, so say it used to, the, the repair used to take uh, eight hours and they got it down to four. 
and then then they're getting all the ba- the pats on the back. Great job, great job. And uh, a, a more progressive reliability organization would would be asking, why is he getting so good at it? Why is he getting so much practice? Now, Bob, on that on that note about practice, something that you've mentioned, well, with Steve and I was that you've come out with this this chronic failure ROI calculator to kind of put those put those failures that happen all the time that we're getting really good at in terms of a longer term spend profile. Do you want to just give us a plug and an intro for that? Yeah, I mean, if you, uh, the, the URL is easy. It's reliability.com. It's clearly out there in the, the front. It's a button on the front somewhere and, the, and, it, and it's free. So the, the purpose of us doing that was to highlight the awareness to the value of chronic failures. Uh, you know, we, we are primarily in the uh, uh, root cause analysis business, and oftentimes the thing type of things people come to us are after it's hit a trigger internally where somebody's really hurt, uh, you've lost, uh, you know, 100 grand or more in uh, either, either production or equipment damage, you've had an environmental release, those, those are all too late, Okay. Uh, what we what we emphasize from the reactive and the um, I mean from the proactive standpoint of reliability is those unnerving things that are happening to people in the field all the time and they're fixing it over and over and over again but because it hasn't hit a trigger on its individual occurrence nobody cares so that that tool that we made was to help people in the field very easily uh, go in and put a uh, uh, to make a business case to to put a value on the cost of those chronic failures by you only there's only three inputs is to say uh, you know how often a year is this happening uh, what is the cost per downtime hour uh, doing that and how many when this typically happens how often are you how long are you down 15 minutes a half hour an hour two hours but those are the only three inputs and you know we, we made it because of the taking the people out to the field is that, you know, oftentimes those really chronic things, they don't even make it into the CMMS because it takes longer to put it in the CMMS does it, than it takes for them to work around it. They just get, it becomes a cost of doing business and it's actually built into your budgets uh, under, uh, you know, a general or a routine category. So, uh, you know, thanks for the time because I would have forgot that. <laughs> thanks, Rob, for the, the, the plug on that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the tool... Uh, you know, it's just building a line item, what we call a an opportunity analysis, but it allows you to instantly make a business case. Uh, and when you go in there and you put that, you know, that, that little bearing conveyor roller bearing failure, uh, you know, you may think that it's only worth about 50 or 100 bucks because that's the cost of the part. But you throw in the fact that, the, you know, that the uh, a lost downtime hour in that uh, conveying area might be $5,000, might be 10. I, I don't know, whatever you're conveying. Uh, but then you take into account, well, we, we've got miles and miles and miles of these conveying systems. And, uh, you know, these are occurring about 500 times a year. It's that frequency factor that makes the difference. And that'll be the difference between, uh, you know, a CFO who doesn't care about the $100 part either. And then you showing them, well, that's actually a million dollar failure. Now you got their attention. So that, that's uh, that. Thanks for reminding me, Rob. Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, you're welcome. But also, I think that this is part of when I get dropped into a new site, it's it's part of the types of things that I want to find. Like, because typically, I, I think that those small chronic failures 
oftentimes they're easier to fix than, you know, some of these big one-off failures, even if you fix them, and obviously you know this, Bob, they don't always happen often or happen at a frequency that that's enough for you to even notice where these chronic ones, if they're happening every day or all the time, it's, those are the ones that really help you get that cultural buy-in. Can, can I give another story, Rob? This is like Absolutely. story time with Bob. The, <laughs> I, I, I've spent about 20 years doing this in uh, RCA and hospitals as well. And this is a, a, one of the case studies from one of the books in uh, healthcare. And it was, you know, like when me and you and uh, Steve go to the hospital, hopefully no time soon, uh, that when you're in the emergency room and, and they draw your blood, and, uh, you know, for any uh, sundry of reasons, when you look at the cycle, they, they take your blood, they label it, they, uh, they have to send it to a lab, and then reports have to be done, and it comes full circle. But for whatever reason, oftentimes people have to have a, uh, what they call a blood redraw, uh, because something in that cycle failed, and then we have to go back and we have to do it again. Well, we, we were asked to do a study of that in, uh, in a, a relatively uh, normal size hospital, about 250 bed is about normal. And we wanted to be able to look at that. And we went and uh, the accounting people help, helped us a ton in just getting the average cost of a redraw. Now this includes the real estate inside the emergency room, because that's, that's a lot of money if you're keeping people in there longer than they need to be and they're not paying. You know, the, the lore adapters, the gauze, the tech time in the lab, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And the average number we came up with was $300, which is on its own, it, it's unimpressive, okay? And nobody thinks twice about doing a redraw. Uh, but the frequency factor is what kicked it over the edge. And we found out that it was happening 10,000 times a year in that one hospital. So that's a, that's a $3 million loss that's hidden hidden in plain sight. Everybody sees it every day, and it never gets questioned. Even if you did RCA bad on that type of situation and got rid of a million, you're way ahead of the game. But otherwise, those are, those are the what we call the hidden treasures. They're, they're the things that people just have to live with and work around. And that was the purpose of that, uh, that little calculator thing, was to highlight that difference to get the people that are uh, financially minded to make uh, to switch it from urgent uh, to important. Now, now I guess that leads me to that question. Like you mentioned, hidden treasures, and maybe Steve, you can give your thoughts on this first. Is how do you go about finding those hidden treasures? Yeah, the that's always a question I've gotten a few times there as well. So it's for me, I always just ask. Uh, that's the first thing I do. I ask the operators, what's shutting you down? Um, I ask the control room operators, same question. I ask the uh, mechanics, what are, you, what are you seeing? And then you can usually start to build a uh, bit of a history and understanding of, okay, what are what's actually taking people's time um, and setting them back. For a lot of the mobile equipment, it tends to be in the winter, no starts or just because, you know, there's some battery issues. So, you, you know, you put a warming blanket or something around the battery and all of a sudden uh, the issue's gone and you've saved that 15, 20 minutes on each haul truck every day. You know, so so that's the first place I go. Other than that, you know, it's um, you just got to watch for it. Uh, you got to use Bob's tool a little bit when you, you think you found something. Um, you can see what work orders keep showing up. Look at your PM checks. 
what keeps failing the PM checks. Bob, do you have any thoughts on that one? I, you know, I, if you need quick wins because, you know, people don't want to go out and uh, to take the time to go ahead and look for what's not in the CMMS, uh, you know, you can do it in your CMMS. Uh, you can go in there and look for the, uh, the, the, the failures that are recorded and you can, uh, because of the work orders generated from them, and then you could go ahead and do a Pareto cut of what's in there. I'm just telling you that the what's more valuable than what's in there is what's not. And and Steve said the same answer I'd have given you is that it, it's in the heads of the people in the field. Uh, you know, the, the, the most chronic things that are happening are not in any recording system that you have. It's in the heads of the people in the field. So even if you took that simple calculator in there and you, you put 10 line items in there, do an 80-20 cut of that, and, I, and most of the time you're going to find out that 20% of those failure modes are costing you 80% of your loss and that you should go ahead and uh, do an analysis on uh, that money. That's easy money. Those are the quick wins, and they'll justify any money that you want to spend on any future project, uh, you know, with you know, one of your pet projects. So, uh, you know, I, I highly encourage uh, getting the stuff out of the heads of the people because it, frust it frustrates them the most. They're motivated to stop these things from happening because it's mind-numbing to fix the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I guess, Bob, for you, like how often do you go out to a site and you find that the reliability engineers basically spend most of their time at their desk versus sometimes going out to the field and, and talking and really interfacing with the shop floor guys? Well, I'm probably going to get beat up for this as the old guy, but <laughs> I think this is the generational thing. Uh, and, it, and it's not just on the industrial side. It's the, the healthcare side as well. I mean, you know, the a generation that didn't grow up with, uh, that grew up with, uh, didn't know a world without uh, computers. So that, you know, we, we also see, you know, that uh, the, in the old days, uh, the engineer would go out there. They, they know how to tear down a pump and put it back together. Uh, you know, current days, uh, people uh, feel that they can solve it behind a screen, and they're really good whatever the program is that they're they're looking at it on the screen. But they're not out in the field getting dirty. Uh, you know, I, I unfortunately am seeing this a lot in the healthcare industry too, from the doctor standpoint, because uh, you know people are just diagnosing you from their uh, iPad. And, uh, you know, they don't feel the need to go in and see you. Uh, so uh, I, I think that it, it is extremely important and, and it's it's just a, a, a basic thing to do is that you go out and talk to the people. I think that with all the ways we have uh, the fancy technologies we have of communicating uh, through social media and, uh, you know, through our phones and our iPads and things like that, is that I think that we're losing those socialization skills Um uh, you know, that, that would allow people to, to talk to each other face to face and just have candid, converse, uh, candid conversations. Well, you, you mean face to face, but with six feet a part of us, right? <laughs> uh, in the current state, exactly. <laughs> now, Steve, one thing actually, it's interesting you bring that up, Bob, is I, like obviously I have some of these IAOT solution providers on the podcast. And one thing I've heard is that is, is is exactly that as a common mistake is that people are relying on these IAOT solutions in lieu of going out into the field. 
Now, Steve, have you seen anything like that? Like, I know that, you know, at tech that you're using some of these IOT solutions where you're able to get data from the trucks and that type of stuff. Like, do you see some of your guys just in the office most of the time or they're still hitting the sites? Well, let's, I'm going to frame that one a little bit differently. So mining is uh, obviously a pretty dangerous activity. I think the biggest incident in mining is people driving around the pit and getting run over by haul trucks. So our goal in just about everything we're, we're doing uh, with sensors and things like that is we don't want people anywhere near these trucks while they're operating. So that's what we, you know, you really want to be able to leverage your data for is keeping people safe. Um, but once that truck is in the shop and the risk has been reduced, it's locked out, you don't have to drive anywhere. You can just walk to it. Yeah, absolutely. They should be be there uh, looking at the equipment um, and validating the sensor data. Like that's the big thing we don't, that I notice a lot of people don't do is they don't validate the sensor data. Okay, yeah, we see this thing being going wrong. Yeah, we changed the pump because of it, but did we look at the pump? Did we find out what those sensor values mean? You know, that kind of aspect of it, like that sensory data is so important and so valuable and can replace a lot of those human checks, but they still need to be validated by human checks. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a prime example for that one, actually. And it was from my time at tech was um, when we first started getting the readings uh, from the crankcase pressure from the engines, we know, well, for people who are listening, I'll give you a little bit of context. So crankcase pressure on the engines, it indicates piston ring failure if it's if it's overly high. Um, and it's measured in inches of water. And what we were doing at tech was we were looking at crankcase pressure and the higher it was, the we were actually having a ton of ring ring issues, but that was another story. Um, but what I found was actual the default quote unquote failure value of the sensor was a high crankcase pressure reading. So so if you got this result, which could, was actually within the realm of possible outcomes that you could get when the sensor is operating, you would shut down the truck, you would assume you had a ring failure, and then you would have to go and investigate it. Now it could be both a ring failure or it could be a sensor failure. And so it's it's really important that one is you understand what is that default value. And ideally, it's some like non-number or like zero or something that's impossible. Because if you have a situation like that, it gets real confusing real quick. That's a classic case for an RCA. Because you'd, <laughs> you'd have, well, I mean, you'd have to be asking the question of how could that occur? And it could it could be one of two things. You know, the, the reading is wrong. Yeah, you know, we always do that with instruments. You know how, how could that have happened? Well, it could have it could have been a true trip or a false trip, right? Those are the options. Yeah, every time I every time I ask how something happened, it's always sensor is always top of the list. Is either it's reading improperly, like it's just bait, it's a template now for sensors. You know, these are the things that'll go wrong with it. Uh, you stick it into just about every one. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you the other side of that too is, so the crankcase pressure in inches of water was the reading that you'd get off the, the download of the truck or it was provided to me by the OEMs uh, who were doing that, the load bank tests. Now, once we got the sensors hooked up, 
through, you know, through the online platform, I noticed that the readings were very low and the ones and I had, and I had two different results. So the OEM was telling me, you know, it was 10 inches of water. And then the sensor was telling me it was like two and a half. And what I realized after it was, it took a while actually to figure it out was that the sensor was reading it in kilopascals where everybody else was reading it in inches of water. So understanding dimensions and units is important too. <laughs> but didn't that happen? Didn't that happen on the Hubble? <laughs> that's it. Well, no, no one was gonna was gonna die from my results. So that's that's a that's a good thing. So so I guess a little bit we'll, we'll kind of wrap up a little bit here. So the first question I want to ask you guys is. Maybe Bob, you can give your takes first. What are some common mistakes that you see people make that maybe we haven't touched on yet? That when you know when they're getting started in reliability. Well, I, I think that you know you, you gotta you gotta find your place. Is uh, how how does the place that you're at define reliability? Because like Steve said, a lot of people will just use it synonymously with maintenance, and then that makes it a lot more difficult because. Uh, Obviously, uh, from a true reliability standpoint, you're you're in the business of looking out for tomorrow, and, and you have to be isolated from the uh, from the daily urgent and deal with what's in the important uh, tomorrow. So, uh, if if I was new in that position, and I would have to get a feel for you know where where's my place, because uh, if uh, I also have to eat and I have to get a check. So uh, if I if I cross my bounds in there, it could be career limiting if I want to do the right thing. And then, you know, maybe it's not the right place for you. But uh, I, I think that you really have to understand the environment and where you work in and uh, the context of what is reliability. Steve, any takes? Yeah, so I, I find a lot of new people getting into reliability tend to be pretty new from university. Um, they're mechanical engineers or some type of engineer um, and they don't really have they've got a good mechanical background but they don't have a good reliability background but they're calling themselves a reliability engineer um, and they don't and they just assume they already know what they need to know um, it's obviously not the same across everybody but um, you know you got to take your ego out of things you got to realize that you don't know everything um it doesn't matter how long you've been in the field there's always things to learn and you know so like i you know i've gone to places where um, they're like oh yeah hate reliability because this guy came in he kept just saying do this do this do this and just dictated everything to do he didn't work with the guys as a team um and treat everybody in a capacity where they get input into it and so they didn't buy into any of the projects and all of a sudden I get there and reliability is like, yeah, no, it sucks because this other guy who did it sucked at it. <laughs> <laughs> Last question for you guys. So, Bob, do you have any top tips for people who are out there and they're, you know, they're trying to get rolling with their program? Well, you know, I, uh, like you said, my, my, my focus is on uh, understanding why things go wrong. And my, I guess one of my big tips is that, that RCA is so ill-defined that no matter what people use to solve problems, they call it RCA. Uh, I'm going to put it in a very broad context is that to me, uh, failure analysis 
uh, is when you are getting down to the physics of failure, it's not RCA because, uh, you know, I'm understanding that I might have fatigue, uh, you know, thermal fatigue and a bearing or something like that. Uh, and then we replace parts. But if you're doing root cause analysis, you're, uh, I, you have to get past the decision maker, get past the blame game, because that person that day, that's how they feed their family with that check. They didn't say, I'm going to with this, with this, uh, this decision, I'm going to screw up today. Uh, they, they felt that the decision that they were making was the right one. And uh, you should drill deeper into the understanding of organizational systems and how they influence people's decision making. Because it, uh, oftentimes in that type of scenario, that person was either following a procedure that was obsolete, uh, that, that person uh, was uh, had incentives that were wrong, which we always see in purchasing. You know, they're getting uh, bonuses for buying cheaper stuff while you're getting an increase in maintenance costs because you introduce defects into the system. So uh, ha have an empathy for understanding why good people make bad decisions. And get your get get out of the uh, go beyond the physics of the failure and understand the social science side of, of all the soft the human stuff, and it's not it's not generally the people it's the systems that support the people. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I love it. I love it, Steve. Any top tips? Uh, yeah. So just to touch back on Bob's there, I've had to. You know, any t when things break or, you know, everybody likes to say, oh, the operator's fault, all oh, the mechanic's fault. Um, I do find it useful every now and again if somebody's particularly angry at something um, to just remind them that every nobody comes to work to break things and make, a, you know, put their job at risk. Everybody comes to work to try and do a good job. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that, Bob. I, that one really... Uh, really empathize with that one <laughs> um my, my my tip is uh really it's building that relationships um i've said it a few times through this podcast i think and you know i think every other podcast we've done but you really need to have that relationship with the technicians the operators the managers you need to be you don't need to be everybody's favorite person but you need to be somebody that they can trust to get a job done and listen to you when they have issues um and once you start getting that, then you can pretty quickly start seeing a lot of those chronic issues that we were talking about um, and get some of your stuff pushed through faster than if you, you know, if somebody doesn't like you, they're going to resist whatever you, whatever changes you're trying to put in. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's something, you know, I, I need, I mean, I worked on and I continue to work on, right, is it's easy to sit at your desk and it's easy to, especially, you know, in, in the capacity that, you know, Steve, you and I work in where we're in these centralized offices. Um, and it's, it's easy to, I've even noticed it, you know, a few times at Enbridge is like people who are the floor below me, they'll ping me instead of coming to see me. And I always, I always just reply back. I'll be down in five minutes. <laughs> And, and it's something, you know, it, it's something that I, I try to do and I still sort of, I still believe in it is like, obviously I can't, I'm unable to go to Sarnia to talk to, you know, my Eastern region and, you know, we're managing, you know, over 10,000 kilometers of pipeline. So it's, it's physically impossible for me to meet everybody in person, but at least the people in my local office, like I will go and see them because I still believe in that 
sort of face-to-face interaction. And I, I do recommend that. Like, I think there is still, as much as, you know, we're on this podcast and, you know, we're from, you know, Edmonton to Sparwood to Virginia Beach, like we're miles and miles apart. There's still something different than when we were together on, you know, in Bourbon Street in Memphis, right? And so I, I think that, well, there was beer there too, but, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, right? Like there's, there's still that extra value. You can, you can kind of connect with people more. And when you connect with people, they're going to tell you the things that they may not have told you over IM or over phone. So yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, now plugs. So, so obviously we, you know, conferences are kind of all up in the air at this point. Now, Bob, they're going to check out your website, reliability.com. They're going to check out the chronic failure uh, calculator. Do you have anything else to plug that you want people to, to check out with you? I don't know. Uh, the, the three conferences that I was going to speak at aren't happening. So we're, we're missing three socials. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, no, rely, we put a, a lot of emphasis. We revamped uh, the, the website. So I really encourage people to go in and uh, look at the reliability.com because it and, and the blog post in there, a lot of what we've been talking about. Uh, I'm, as you guys know, I'm very active on LinkedIn and uh, I write a lot about things like root cause analysis versus shallow cause analysis. What's the difference and correlations between reliability and safety? Uh, these, these are just, you know, passions of mine. So uh, either my LinkedIn page or the reliability.com page. Thanks for th- thanks for the open too. No, absolutely. And 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 uh, if you're looking for Bob's LinkedIn page, check the podcast notes. Or if obviously if you got through LinkedIn, he'll be tagged in the post. Steve, anything to plug? Uh, not really. Just uh, <laughs> somewhat low key these days. Um, but you know I've check out my other podcast that I've done with you. I did one with uh, upkeep as well, but really, you know, it just, you know, be safe. Everybody remember that we're not just staying inside for ourselves. We're doing it for everybody else. Yeah. So that's, that's about it for me. Yeah. And that's, that's the one thing I'll, I'll just kind of echo that. Right. So I was supposed to have a doctor's appointment today and I called in to cancel it because I heard, you know, a lot of people are going to the doctor for COVID or, you know, even though they're not supposed to, they're, they're doing it anyways. Um, but I did need, you know, I did need some help and, and actually was able to call the doctor's appointment or the doctor's office. And I got a telephone consultation done from, I don't know where my doctor was, but I was at home. And so there is, if you need medical help, that's not, you know, COVID related, there's still access to your, your medical professionals. So definitely take, like, if you need it, go and get it. Because I know, I know it's easy to just be like, stay at home and suffer. Um, but you deserve better than that. So that's just a PSA for me. Um, and then also, you know, echoing off of what Bob has posted on LinkedIn numerous times is don't go to the hospital because you're going to die if you go there. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which scares the shit out of, I mean, it scares, it scares me a lot. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, first off uh, or last off, I guess, Bob, I really appreciate you joining us today and Steve also as well. Uh, th- thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, guys. I appreciate being on.
I was saying no. Th- thanks for the opportunity, and uh, I always appreciate hanging out with you guys. You're a lot of fun. <laughs> well, just like Memphis. Yeah, no. <laughs> I I'd much rather be in Memphis on Bourbon Street than uh, it's it's cold in Sparwood. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe next year, or maybe in 2021. No, I I mean I appreciate you guys both making the time. Uh, today to to connect and then also you know i i also appreciate you guys jumping on the webinar last week and as long as we're still on lockdown you know we'll we'll probably have you guys back on at one of the upcoming ones as well Uh, for everyone listening today obviously if you don't yet subscribe to rob's reliability project podcast on your favorite podcast platform follow rob's reliability project on linkedin i have been doing some bonus webinars as long as i am out of the office so definitely follow that and sign up for my newsletter at robsreliability.com to be updated on those webinars we're doing them as long as i'm on lockdown and then we'll see what what it goes out in the future but we're doing some bonus q a style webinars the one today that you will have missed you know we have, I think, six great guests on. Bob and Steve were on last week, and then the one on Mondays with my leadership and mindset coach. So we're going to get into some diverse stuff and definitely get some cool, cool information for you guys. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.